Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is my interview with the writer for Bones and All, David Kajanik. We killed a flame. You don't think I'm a bad person? All I think is that I love you. You look like the kind that's convinced himself he's got this under his thumb. But you pull on one little thread and... I'm ready. My lord. All right, everybody, I'm being joined here today by David Kajanik, the screenwriter for the new film from Luke Guadagnino, Bones and All. David, how are you today? I'm really well. How are you, Matt? I'm doing great. Doing great. For those that don't know, I'm sure nobody knows this, you and I have spoken before. (laughs) (laughs) We actually conducted this interview a couple days ago during a New York Film Festival, and by the end of it, I realized, oh, God, this wasn't being recorded. Conversation was so good, though, that David has agreed to come back again, and I'm glad he has because I want to definitely express to everyone how intricately layered and complex Bones and All is, and it's mostly due to your adaptation. Uh, Can you first talk to me about the discovery of the book and how it came to uh, be in your possession, if you will, and then how you ultimately came on board the project. It was sent to me. um, Thank you for saying all that. It was sent to me by a producer I'd never met before um, with a very sort of strongly worded email that she really thought I was the right person to adapt this. And when that happens, and it doesn't happen a lot, frankly, Mm -hmm. um, that somebody is that sort of passionate about the idea of you're you're doing a project, I always take it very seriously and and read it. and, And I think I understood sort of why I came to mind because it is a it is a strange sort of blending of genre and drama. Um, and it certainly uh, could be driven by character in a way that a lot of horror movies, traditional horror movies sort of aren't, or aren't interested in, in um, kind of building themselves that way. Um, I thought, okay, well, but I want to have a conversation with the author for a couple of reasons. One, I wanted to make sure that she was um, encouraging of the idea of, of, a, of a man writing a script uh, that felt like an adaptation of a pretty personal book about mm-hmm. a young woman's sort of awakening, yeah. but also to make sure that that I really understood uh, how this book, um, why this book and how this book mattered to her. Um, and if there were things that she, you know, in hindsight had felt maybe weren't explicit enough in the book or too explicit um, thematically or psychologically or what have you. And so, you know, I, I spent a couple of com- really good conversations with Camille talking about um, her point of view about it before I pitched anything, you know, and, and um, it, 
it wasn't really like a pitch meeting at the end of the day. It was just, it was a conversation about a fan of a book and the author of the book talking about what, what mattered in the book. Sure, absolutely. And the book has horror elements to it, but it is so much more than just that. Like you said, it's like this coming of age story. I've heard so many different interpretations for what the cannibalism uh, is supposed to represent for a younger audience today. Um, And also too, even for what it means for the characters that are outside of Taylor Russell and Timothy Chalamet's uh, characters, like an older audience even. So I've heard all these different interpretations of it, but you, uh, with Suspiria, working on The Invasion, and then there was also, um, I'm trying to remember, what was it called? Was it called uh, Blood Creek, if uh, I remember correctly? Uh, I didn't call it that, but yeah, it ended up being Sure. <laughs> but in any event, though, your work has dabbled in the horror genre. Would you say that that was like one of the identifying features that ultimately brought it your way here? And how do you feel like that being something that's kind of in your wheelhouse at this point in your career? Yeah, I love, I love, I've always loved horror films. And I think that genre is, is um, often the bravest genre if, mm-hmm. if, if used well. I think, you know, there's, there's a way in which um, at the start of your, your career, whatever that, whatever, whatever that means to you, I think you, you, you do need to have some sense of what your, not, not what you're best at, but what you're most curious about. And I think, mm-hmm. You know, horror has always struck me as a, a genre that, you know, obviously it's about anxiety, but there's there are so many ways to use uh, horror that aren't about scaring an audience. Um, I, I don't think of, of horror as primarily a genre about fear. I think it's primarily a genre about either sadness or rage um, mm. and, and sort of any anywhere on that continuum. Um, you know, ghost stories are often about rage or sadness or both. And, and, you know, uh, you know, you can go through all of the subcategories of horror and, and you can see how those extremes of emotion that aren't about fear are in play. And I just think, you know, with a story about a young woman coming into her identity as somebody who will never be, um, will never be invited in by society because of this thing that is cannibalism in the film, but you're right, could, could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, Sure, you know, echoing ways that, you know, the grounds on which they have been pushed aside or alienated or discounted or disenfranchised. And it was really important to us that you felt that element of the cannibalism, that it was the thing that was othering these characters mm-hmm. and what's before you thought of it as a horror concept somehow, or at least when you left the theater, you thought of it that way. And I think, you know, what you have in this film are are a number of characters uh, who have decided that this thing won't destroy them, but they also don't quite know how to live with it or how to navigate our world with this kind of imprinted on who they are. Uh, And so, you know, to me, it's a horror concept in a secondary way. It's a catalyst for, for character primarily. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. Sure. 
And it's interesting because you're talking about navigating the world in a certain way. One of my favorite aspects of this movie uh, that I find that a lot of uh, very high concept films don't tend to do as well as this one does is your film establishes that there are rules for being accountable in this world and how they have to follow these rules in order to survive. Otherwise, the alternative is their existence primarily will end to some degree or another at some point on a long enough timeline. So can you talk to me just a little bit about the way that Bones and All establishes its rules for these characters to follow? And why do you feel that most movies, and I'm talking even like these big scale blockbusters sometimes, why do you think that lots of films have trouble communicating what the boundaries are for storytelling with rules? Well, I think it's a great question. It's a question I spent a lot of time thinking about because I I do work in genre quite a lot, or at least mm-hmm. have one foot in genre quite a lot. And I think there's a, uh, I don't know, I don't know if this is the right way to articulate it, but there's a way that you can invite an audience to kind of play your movie like a game, like a video mm-hmm. game in the sense that they're actively involved, but they're actively involved because there are, let's be kind and call them encouragements within the film um, to be pushed around by it. Sure. You know, there are stingers in the soundtrack. There are impossible sort of cuts that, you know, or, or blocking that allows for suspense to enter the frame that actually wouldn't if you were in the room with that situation happening. You know, the mm-hmm. classic one is, a tight a tight frame on somebody with somebody right behind them yeah. and we played a little bit with that with that sort of primitive technique in one scene in the film you may recall oh i know exactly which one homage you're thinking of. <laughs> yep yep the sort of the tools that normally get used in in this which is a bit like curating a game for an audience sometimes that's really fun and it's really appropriate in this film it didn't really feel that way and so it felt like the rules are um they're there to also help unpack character. At least that was my my thought in writing the script the way that I wrote it, which is right. there aren't really lines of exposition for the audience. I mean, there are a lot of rules we could have further unpacked. Do you know what I mean? Like what happens if an eater doesn't eat? What happens if an eater eats somebody of their own blood type or, you know, whatever. Sure. You know, they, none of those felt like they were really helpful in unpacking these characters. But the idea that there's a character like Sully who sort of takes it upon himself to try to mentor the, the protagonist of the film, that isn't really about rules at all. That's about a man who needs to feel valued by someone else and who yeah. hasn't felt that way in three or four decades, probably. And so the rules, so to speak, become actually a currency between them that's about, that is about being seen somehow or not being yeah. seen. And so those feel like um, really excellent reasons to have rules in a film. Having the audience feel, um, I don't know, encouraged to to sort of experience the film like a video game is it? It's not a reason to have rules that is there is interesting to me, anyways. You know, it's interesting you say that because I was thinking about the scene with uh, Michael Stuhlbarg and David Gordon Green, where David Gordon Green's character isn't even and either suffering from this affliction and that that idea of like wanting to be seen. Uh, that, that just adds, uh, maybe intentionally or unintentionally, so now a new thought process for me when I look at that character specifically in that scene. So that's that's very interesting, and I, I really like the way that you frame that there. But I want to talk about Mark Rylance really quick, because <laughs> yeah. it's such an Please, out-there performance from him. That. He's so creepy, yet so entertaining to watch in this. Uh, your eyes are just transfixed on everything that he's saying and doing throughout. I, I think about the line, um, it's never dully with Sully, and I just <laughs> yeah. cry every single time I hear him say that. <laughs> but to me, that almost sounds like a line that was improvised. If it was, 
Was there improvisation coming from Mark? And if not, I, I commend you because that character is just so fascinatingly written. What I find, and I've worked with a, like a number of really wonderful British actors who work in theater as much as they do in film or, or television, mm-hmm. um, they don't improvise, or at least unless they're encouraged to. They, they sure. would never, um, I don't know, the people I'm thinking of wouldn't presume to do that without discussing it with everyone first. And so, you know, that's a line you're speaking of uh, from the book, actually, that I thought was wonderful. Ah. Um, but Mark didn't do a lot. And no, nobody in the film, um, maybe with the exception of Timmy, because because his energy is sometimes so high that one wants to see what he sort of comes up with. But yeah. we followed the script pretty closely. But that's not to say we didn't make changes right. um, based on the actor's sort of thoughts and ideas. We do that a lot, Luke and I, when we work together. Um, but but it was uh, the dialogue is so specific in this film. And it's so... Um, uh, there's a kind of morbid humor to it that isn't necessarily an intuitive one. So I, I, I wasn't surprised that there wasn't a lot of improvisation on set um, at the end of the day. But Mark is Mark would <laughs> he uh, he doesn't need to improvise. He can take a sure. line and make it mean whatever he wants to with his body and his voice and his. I mean, he is such a masterful actor that uh, he wouldn't have to change a line to change the meaning of it. If you could, and you, you know see what? what, like, I guess that's just a testament to how good he is at embodying his characters that I can feel like, Oh, this was like an organic thing that he came up with. That's how natural it comes across. And yeah. I think that just speaks to it's, you know, his ultimate uh, skill as an actor really. Uh, but also too, with the writing in particular, I love that you mentioned earlier that it just focuses so much on character. You know, I think a lot of times writers fall into a trap of oh and then this happens in the story and then this happens but it's not necessarily events that are actually pushing the characters forward uh and so what i like about this movie is that it's a road trip where they go from point a to point b they're encountering different characters along the way um and so your film has a certain structure uh to its screenplay and how it has to uh follow some of those genre conventions too, even though this is a blending of different genres. Can you talk about like the shape that the screenplay uh, took over multiple drafts? I'm curious to know if it was always structured uh, one way and kept that way throughout, or did you play around with that in the adaptation process? Well, the only thing that I changed my mind about, and this was because, you know, in conversation with Luca as well, by the time he came aboard the project was there were flashbacks at some point in the film about Marin's childhood. Uh, Uh, And that was mostly because I thought that whether we kept them or not in the editing room, I thought that it was useful to sort of have them in order for Marin sort of to, to feel, um, that you could feel the the the, the her dis, her process of discovering what she had done when she was a child. Um, it seemed important to have that in the script somewhere, even if we didn't use it. But but mostly the structure stayed the same. And I think what's so wait a minute was the about, tape recorder something that was introduced as a way to weave those flashbacks yes. in? Okay, yeah, yeah, gotcha. And so and it just you know Andre Holland is such a gifted actor that it was just more interesting at the end of the day to hear him say these things as opposed to mm-hmm. see them, which isn't always the case in a film. But I think, you know, to answer your question, there was a, um, when you have a road movie inside of this, let's call it the kind of genre package of this film, sure, it necessarily means that in order to do that well, you know, road trips aren't really trips from point A to point B to point C. They have all kinds of detours and accidents and, you know, um, ways that they get off track. And, and, you know, that is, really fun to write, but when the film is also meant to be a kind of tightly coiled sort of horror film and also a a sort of an intricately built love story, 
you know, applying that looseness of a road movie, which isn't really loose at all. Each one of those deviations and dead ends is calculated. I mean, it's right. meant to make you feel like you're really on some kind of a, a journey, an impro- improvised journey. Um, you're necessarily going to get people in the audience thinking this is a bit meandering, but that was so important to this film because without it, I think a lot of these scenes would have felt staged as opposed to found by the characters um, sure. or staged by us. And, and so it was important to basically to, I don't know, to confound the pacing a little bit. It was necessary because these genres don't really fit intuitively together mm-hmm. um but it seemed more important to be naturalistic about it and have the audience really feel like they were on a on this kind of uh, messy journey as opposed to tightening it up too much sure totally and i want to preface by saying with this question that if people have not seen the film yet uh please stop now uh because this is a spoiler question don't you know that you're a grown-up I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) I would like to know from your own point of view, or maybe it's in the book. Uh, I haven't read it, so I can't say for sure. But after, yeah, so after Lee ultimately... Uh, is unfortunately killed at the end of the story and Marin's all by herself. It feels almost like uh, I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been wrestling with is it is it an odd note to end on? Is it the right note to end on? Am I still like like I'm still trying to grasp why this endpoint because so much of the film is built around this central uh, romance and that desire for connection that you were talking about earlier, that desire to feel seen and when she's finally found it, what is her purpose now moving forward beyond this point? I'm just curious to know, was there ever a point of discussion about taking the story further beyond that than ending the film a little bit later, giving the audience more of that closure? What is the ultimate takeaway with the ending being what it is that you want people to walk away with? Because I, I love the film. I want to preface by saying that. But also at the same time, I am slightly bewildered by where Marin as a character who I'm very emotionally invested in at this point, where, where she goes from here. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't, there was an ending scene in the script um, that what that happens at some indeterminate length of time after what we see as the ending of the film, um, which is we, we are suddenly with a group of school children on a field trip with their teachers and they uh, end up at a, like a dock waiting for a ferry to take them to someplace in Island where they're going for the day. And they see Marin sort of sitting by the the, the, the edge of the lake, um, sort of washing up after what we, you know, what it was obviously some 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 kind of kill. <laughs> uh, and the one of the school teachers tries to talk with her, and she isn't she isn't responding, and and then goes down to the shore to try to find her, and she's gone at the end of the film. And and it was that was there in the script because I felt like one one might want to know that she's okay and not yeah. in a way that that was necessarily um, clear uh, about how she's done it or what she feels about it, but that she does survive 
the loss of Lee. Mm-hmm. But on set, when we were shooting in Nebraska, there was a there was a moment when Luca had this idea of ending the film sort of with this shot of them back together in Nebraska. And we don't know whether that's a dream of Marin's or a dream of Lee's or a death wish or a it's impossible to sort of unpack it given what we've seen before. And he was so passionate about, about it. And I thought, well, my only question is, do I feel like with this ending that I, that I know that Marin has decided to live and decided to give sort of, as her father says, her heart a chance. And I, and the answer was yes. Yeah. And so I actually, you know, came around to Luca's point of view, which is to see any more than that uh, really would be deflating somehow. Um, and to understand that she's somebody who was given no instruction manual, was given no encouragement to connect with anyone, was really shoved kind of out of the, the, the sort of the, away from the table of society mm-hmm. um, and still finds connection because she can, because she's open to it. Uh, and she has enough tools to be able to do that, and certainly more tools now that she's known Lee. And so I don't need to see that she's okay at the end of the. St- I'm, I'm sure she is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think. I don't think she. I don't. I, I. I. Yeah. I feel that that her relationship with Lee ennobled her even more than her own sense of self worth, and that's all the ending. I think I needed from the film, and and uh, but it's a great question because it's it's something I obviously wrestled with in the script. Sure. Hey, I, I feel good knowing that Marin's okay too. So <laughs> she's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's all that matters at this point. But also, what matters is that the film is coming out uh, pretty soon here to theaters uh, on November 18th from United Artists Releasing um, and MGM. And I just would like to uh, thank you once again, David, for your time here and talking about this film with me. It's a very layered uh, story that I'm sure audiences are going to be both. <laughs> They're going to be disgusted by it. They're going to love it. They're also going to be, I think, emotionally, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Tormented by it, <laughs> but in a good way, in a good I way. Hope so. Absolutely. I hope so. There's a lot to unpack with this one, and I can't wait to see uh, how it gets further discussed uh, down the line. And thank you so much once again. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it too, Matt. It's lovely to speak to you. Absolutely. You have a good rest of your day. You too. Thank you. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to my interview with the screenwriter for Bones and All, David Kajanik, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Bones and All is currently playing in theaters from MGM and United Artists releasing. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, 
and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you.